0: Haven't been introduced yet. My name is Dave Warrens. I have the honor of serving here at Grace Fellowship Church as the director of missions and mobilization. Uh, I hope you guys know I'm not just saying that it's my privilege. It really is a joy to get to have a front row seat to what God is doing around the world through his people, through his church. I love my job. And, and more than that, I love being able to help folks just like you Get as close to the action as you possibly can. Get some, get some real ministry dirt in there under your fingernails. And, and so there is a, an opportunity to meet one of our missionary families this afternoon, about 2 o'clock here at the Florence <laughs> campus. Come on back uh, and get to see what God's up to in the Czech Republic, talking to John and Sandy Dostel. We love them and we'd love for you to meet them. So we're going to stack privilege on top of privilege. I get to serve as the missions and mobilization director, but I also get to open up God's word with you Today, as we continue our journey through the story of Esther, we're going to be in Esther chapter six today. So if you want to turn in your copy of the scriptures, uh, as you're making your way there, I'm going to do a really brief recap of the, the events leading up to chapter six, just in case somebody missed out on the first half of our series. But I mean, honestly, if you've been here the entire time, you could probably still use a refresher. There's a lot of characters and a lot going on. So buckle up. Here we go. Esther and Mordecai are Jews. They're living in exile in the pagan kingdom of Persia. Esther has already been chosen the queen of Persia. Mordecai is still serving as sort of a a mid level government official. They're both living in the capital city of Susa. And also living in the capital is the king, naturally, right? King Ahasuerus. He is the wicked. Arrogant, foolish king, he's a weak leader, and one of the unfortunate byproducts of having a weak, foolish leader is they tend to promote other weak, foolish men into positions of power and influence. One such rising star in Persia is a wicked man named Haman, and we're not really sure why, but Haman has been promoted to something like a a prime minister, maybe a, a chief counselor to the king and Haman and Mordecai have some history together. We we don't really have time to get into all of their history this morning, but suffice to say Mordecai is the mortal enemy of Haman. Haman has made it his personal goal to do as much evil as he possibly can to the Jew Mordecai. And he's done a pretty bang up job so far. Back in chapter 3, Haman uh, bribed and bullied the king into signing a royal decree saying all the Jews in the entire empire from East Asia over to Central Africa, they're going to be systematically wiped out all in one day. It's about a year from now, and it's been scheduled out, but Haman can't wait that long before he exacts his personal revenge on Mordecai. So he's cooked up a plan to murder Mordecai himself with his own hands just as soon as he can get permission from his buddy, the king. But what Haman doesn't know is that Mordecai has history with King Ahasuerus as well. About five years before this whole feud with Haman boiled boiled over, Mordecai overheard a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. He turned in the assassins. They were killed instead. And, And the king, though, he's completely clueless. He has no idea about Haman's personal vendetta against Mordecai. And he doesn't even know what ethnicity he's decreed is going to be wiped out in about 11 months. He's oblivious to the fact that his royal decree is going to kill both Mordecai, his savior, and Queen Esther, his wife. In fact, speaking of Esther, neither Mordecai nor the king has any idea that Esther is actually a Jew yet. They don't know that she's related to Mordecai. They don't know particularly that Mordecai and Esther are quietly, courageously, maybe a little desperately, working to save the Jewish people. Whew. Okay, we're all up to speed. Esther chapter 6. All of these storylines are converging. On purpose, right? This is a, an epic story. A- and these... Individual storylines are converging here in chapter 6. So if you would follow along as we read from Esther chapter 6. Actually, we're going to back it up a little bit. Esther chapter 5. Esther 5, verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyfully and glad of heart. But when he saw Mordecai sitting in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons and the promotions which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she's prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her to go with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, "Let let gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. And then joyfully go with the king to the feast. And the idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. Chapter six. And on that particular night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found out, written, how Mordecai had told about bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded his threshold, who were, had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, well, what honor or distinction was bestowed on Mordecai because of this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing was done for him. And so the king said, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, well, Haman is here, standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the, the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him and the horse throughout the square of the city, proclaiming, thus shall they unto to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse. As you said, go do so to, to, to Mordecai, the Jew. You'll, you'll find him sitting at the king's gate. <laughs> Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. And his wise men and his wife Zeresh said, if Mordecai, whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. Surely you will fall before him. And while they were yet talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Father God, we need your help today. Father, your word is worth more than our lives. It is the bread that we live on. Would you feed us from it today through your spirit? Would you give us insight into your purposes and your plans? Would you help us to believe it as though our lives depend on it? We need your help. Amen. Folks, you know, if Haman wasn't so wicked, you could almost feel bad for the guy. You know, he starts out in the morning and he's on top of the world. And in a couple of hours, just a mad, not even a full day, God has providentially jackhammered all of his plans into rubble. I don't think it was just Haman that was being co-opted into a bigger story. Everybody had plans. The king had plans. Slaves had plans. And everybody's plans are being forced, funneled into this one story. God's providence is coming off of these pages here like a bass drum beating, beating its way through all the events beating its way all through these interactions the the book of Esther is famous for having not mentioned God once and so we talk about this hidden hand of God moving throughout the storyline friends, God's sovereignty in chapter 6 is about as subtle as a dump truck this Pounding of purpose, 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 purpose. It overwhelms the characters. It overwhelms the plots and the counterplots until all we can feel is this vibration of God's sovereignty pumping through purpose, purpose, purpose. I hope you can feel it right? Because Haman didn't just happen to see Mordecai sitting at the gate. Haman's wife didn't just happen to suggest he goes back to the palace that night. The king didn't happen to just be awake all night. He didn't just happen to call for the record books that just happened to turn to Mordecai's service. Haman's entrance, the king's question, Mordecai's service to the empire, these things didn't just happen. There's purpose. There's purpose. There's purpose. And by the end of the chapter, here in verse 14, by the end of the chapter, even poor Haman, poor demoralized, beat-down Haman, can recognize that events are swirling out of his control as he is literally swept away to round number two with the royal couple. And there's no reason to believe that Haman had any idea what the purpose was behind all of these converging events that are disrupting his perfect plans. But, But what about you? Can you say with any confidence that you know what God is up to in this story? I think on the surface, we could all say, yeah, God's working all of these events so that the Jews, his people, aren't going to be annihilated in 11 months. Makes sense. True. Yes. But is that really all that he's doing? Is that all that God is up to here in the story of Esther? What if? What if the entire story of Esther, all the, the characters and the complexity, is really just one single thread that's being woven into a larger, much more elaborate storyline? What if we could say that same weaver is taking every single life that has ever been created and weaving together one large story out of them. If you've been here for a little while, that may not sound too far-fetched to you. We kind of get that that's where we're headed. But folks, as we engage with a world that is less and less familiar with the God of the Bible, we, his ambassadors, are going to have to be more and more clear in our proclamation of who God is and what he's up to. And, and our part, right, as, as pastors, as elders, as leaders of the church, is to help equip all of you, all of the saints, to do that proclamation about who God is and what he's up to with confidence, even joy. Right? We want you to have confidence and joy as you're engaging somebody who is struggling to become more like Jesus, We want you to have confidence and joy as you engage with somebody who is actively trying to reject Jesus. Maybe even as you sacrifice your comfort and your safety and you engage with somebody who's never met somebody, who's ever known anybody who personally knows Jesus, we want you to do that with confidence and joy. That's part of what Pastor Brian was talking about with with the CDT plug. Friends, we are ambassadors, but we get to choose our attitude about it. These aren't hypothetical scenarios. I personally know people who are in each of those categories some of them obviously are in another part of the world, another time zone. But some are right here, right here in this room. Some people who are, are doing real ministry, whether it's at Florence or, or Fort Thomas or Independence. And I know that regardless of their geography, those people's ability to participate in what God is doing around them and even through them is directly proportionate to how they understand and submit to God's ultimate goals. And so as we live out Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, right, equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, I can't just tell you about God's sovereignty without also telling you about God's providence. You see, he's not just in charge of things. He's also up to something. He's up to something epic, something eternal. Friends, he's up to something Good. As we read through Esther, particularly chapters 5, 6, and 7, it's not hard to see that God has a lock on things, that he's limiting, ordering, controlling, and knowing all of these things, but that's only half of the equation. God's sovereignty might describe his divine right to make decisions, his authority to make choices. Or or say it another way, uh, God's role as the creator of the universe says that he has the sole right to choose which threads get woven, the dark threads and the light threads, which ones to cut short, which ones to leave long. It's all his prerogative. That's what sovereignty means, and we embrace that. But providence says he's using that authority to weave together something beautiful. We also believe that. And in his book titled Providence, Pastor John Piper tries to articulate the distinction between these complementary doctrines. Piper suggests that the doctrine of sovereignty would draw our focus to God's power. And the doctrine of God's providence would draw our attention to his purposes. And you personally may not feel the need to draw that sharp of a distinction between these doctrines. But at least... Pastor Piper saw the necessity of another 750 pages to be cranked out in defense of that. Around here, we're pretty comfortable summing up those two doctrines in one sentence. We say God limits, orders, controls, and knows all things for his glory and our good. It's been our mantra for decades, and we think it does a pretty good job. The first half, God's lock, it describes his power. The second half, all things for his glory, our good, that's talking about his purposes, right? But neither of those doctrines is particularly easy for people to embrace. It's actually, I think, in every case, a miraculous work of a kind God and the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts to embrace, maybe even celebrate, or at least humbly submit to God's power and his purposes, And one of these days, all of us who do that are going to joyfully celebrate all of God's plans and exactly how he brought them all to fruition. But today, at least for me, I'd be happy with a couple of days in a row where it's not a real struggle just to submit. (laughs) But here's the thing. I don't believe my struggle to submit to God's power and his providence is evenly distributed across those doctrines. I don't believe that struggle in particular, right? That that God's sovereignty and God's providence are equally difficult to celebrate. Because it seems as if God's limiting, his ordering, his knowing, his controlling, all of these things, it's ever so slightly easier for me to embrace. Mostly because there are so many pieces of the world that I know for a fact I can't control. You think about planetary orbits right? Ecosystems, volcano, my own heartbeat. I can't affect this. God must be in control of some of it. And so on those occasions, I would say rare occasions, but we're all friends, right? On those occasions where I disagree with God, it's not typically about his ability to rule. That's not usually where my conflict with God comes from. His, his ability, his capability to, to choose and control, I'm confident he can do that. My conflict with God, our disagreements almost always can be traced back to me setting my sights on a different destination than God. Some lesser purpose than what he has decreed. And I don't believe we can know all of God's intentions or purposes. We said a few weeks ago, right, it's a blessing to have some ignorance in our lives because that's what builds our faith, which according to Peter is more precious than gold. And so the normal Christian life is characterized by faith. We see that in Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. But God in his kindness has revealed to us some a few of his long-term goals, his big-picture purposes. And so for the rest of our time today, I want to explore three specific goals that God has revealed through our text, and especially I want to highlight the blessings, the unique and particular blessings that come along from celebrating his purposes. I think we're going to see that God uses our submission and celebration of his purpose Not just to direct our lives, but also to protect our lives. Okay, purpose number one. Purpose number one is God's own glory. I hope that's not a surprise to anybody this morning that that God revealing his own worth to the universe is his number one priority. God has decided that a clear and accurate revelation of his own multifaceted perfections is going to be the primary Motivator, maybe not the singular motivator, but the primary and principal motivation behind all of his activity in the known universe. And when we embrace that truth as the foundational primary motive for our lives as well, right, that it is a more real purpose in, in everything we do than anything we could cook up, when we embrace that truth, we can enjoy the unique blessing that comes along with a proper alignment to God's revealed purposes. And that first blessing that we're going to see in our passage today, it's an immunity. The first blessing is an immunity to our natural, our, our, I think our human, preoccupation with what I'm going to call the things that only I know. We humans are obsessed. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are a lot of people who are infatuated with that tiny sliver of knowledge that we believe belongs only to me. It could be our secrets that only we know. It could be our expertise that we have earned in our field or our topic. Typically, it's nothing more than my own personal observations or experiences. These are the things that I know, and I am obsessed with them. I hope it's okay that I went ahead and switched over to the we and our language. If this doesn't apply to you particularly, just hang in. We'll get to your thing in a second. But for the rest of us, can you imagine how much simpler, how much safer your life would be if there wasn't this near constant compulsion to make sure everybody else knows what I know, our social media empire would collapse overnight. But now put yourself in Mordecai's shoes for a second. Right, this man has performed a heroic act for the empire. He saved the life of the king, and the guy didn't even get a thank you card. Right, at least get him a, a Starbucks gift card or, or some Chick-fil-A meal coupons. Something. Make him feel special for a day. Nothing. Five years go by and it's silence. Seems like Mordecai is the only one who knows. And we're not sure if Mordecai's celebrating God's eternal purposes during that time but the real question is what about you? What does your heart do When you've been overlooked, what does your heart do when it finds out that nobody around you cares to know what you know? Friends, choosing to celebrate God's number one purpose, it can shelter us. It can protect us from the poisons of bitterness, of discontent, of loneliness, but maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not your struggle here today. Maybe your struggle comes from the other side of the spectrum. Maybe you need protection from the other side where it's not that you're the only one who knows, but it, but it seems like maybe you're the only one who doesn't know. Again, in this chapter, we see the king talking about Mordecai. We see Haman talking about Mordecai. We see the king and Haman talking to each other about Mordecai. Seems like the only person not talking about Mordecai is Mordecai. They're talking about his past. They're talking about his present. They're deciding his future in his absence. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever found yourself outside the circle and everybody seems to know Something you don't know. How do you feel? What does your heart do? Are you discouraged? Anxious? Outraged? Or just just lonely? Friends, when we truly celebrate God's first and primary purpose, the pursuit of his own glory in our world, we get to enjoy the blessing that Pastor Tim Keller calls the freedom of self Forgetfulness. And it is a real blessing, folks. Keller says this is gospel humility. Blessed self forgetfulness. Not thinking more of myself, as in modern cultures, or less of myself, as in the traditional cultures. Simply thinking of myself less. This freedom from obsessing over the things that only I know. Or being anxious about the things that only I don't know. Friends, that is not a small thing. We could stop there. I think we could all rest in that and use a little break. But there are more blessings to come. The second blessing we're going to see in this chapter comes from embracing God's other purposes. Seeing, celebrating, embracing that God's sovereignty is working all things together for the good of his people. and So displaying his multifaceted perfections is without a doubt his primary divine purpose in all of his activities. But that doesn't mean it's the only thing on his mind. Again, Pastor John Piper has done a remarkable job convincing people around the world that God's glory and our good are really just two sides of the same coin. And he's certainly not the first pastor or theologian to put that theory out there, and, and he has convinced a lot of people of that connection. I'm convinced, but you don't have to be, because at the end of the day, you don't reckon with me, you don't reckon with, with John Piper or Jonathan Edwards, you have to reckon with God's Word about what he says his purposes are. And friends, the scripture leaves in no uncertain terms God's intent to do good for his people. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says to the church, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Psalm 31, says "How great is your goodness, which you have laid up for the people who fear you." And of course, our, our favorite Romans 8:28 has become quite popular. Right? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and have called according to His purpose. The most powerful, wise, creative and kind being that has ever existed has chosen to bend his limitless resources. For the personal goal of doing good for you. Just sit in that for a second. Of course that assumes that you're one of those people who joyfully submits and celebrates his first purpose, right? But the real problem for us, the real problem that I see is that entirely too many people have humbly submitted to that first goal while simultaneously ignoring God's other goals I'm not a hundred percent sure you can do that while you are joyfully celebrating But I definitely know you can do that while you're humbly submitted And so that if that's you today, right if you're sitting here and by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit You have said you are God. I am not I submit to the reality of Christ's divinity and work on the cross but you have not yet humbly submitted to the other goals that he has stated in the scriptures, would you seriously consider, take some time, carve it out, seriously consider if you really know the God you've submitted to? Because he has stated that he intends to do good to his people. Now, before somebody throws a flag on the play, why please don't, Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm I'm not saying that God's purposes for acting in this world is to make his people rich in this world. That's not what we're talking about. His goal is not for you to always be healthy. His goal is not for you to always come out on top and ahead. That is not what we're saying. He is definitely not Limiting, ordering, controlling, and knowing all things in our world so that you can go out and get yourself some sweet calf implants and a Bugatti, okay? That is not the God we serve. This is his universe. This is his goal. And so he gets to decide what it means when he says he does good for his people. But when he says it's good, I think we can take his word on it confidently, meaning I don't think we need to be worried about God somehow confusing for your good with good for you, as if he's out here passing out multivitamins and fish oil, right? a little bed of kale with some cauliflower rice. Right, that's not our God. This is the God who invented music. This is the God who thought up the northern lights. Friends, he gave us sex. I think he knows good when he sees it. And we can trust that his good is actually good. The reason I know we need to be serious about celebrating this goal. is Because I talk to too many people, too many Christians. Who would say they embrace God's sovereignty. And yet they are diving headlong into these extremes of, of rationalization or fatalism. And I say rationalization, right, but it's really no better than superstition, right? It's when people start making these connections and assigning meaning beyond anything that's helpful or even biblical. For instance, I'll I'll give you a a, a quick example. Say uh, a young single man, he's walking into Target as as young single men are wont to do. (laughs) And he sees ahead of him a, a lovely young lady and he starts making connections drawing assumptions, making meaning. He says, you know what? My favorite animal is a lion. God knew that. And this woman has a lion tattoo. Incredible. And she's stepping out of an impala, a lion's favorite snack food. Isn't God good? He has ordained that I should marry this young woman. It's laughable, right? I mean, you guys are chuckling. That's great. Please don't forget Genesis 3. Eve never questioned God's authority to give an order about which trees she can eat from. That was never a doubt. Her question was, does he really have my good in mind when he gives the order? And so Eve starts making connections. And she starts finding meaning. And she says, look at the tree. Look at this fruit. This is good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. And it makes you wise. I'd be stupid not to eat it. And just in case, just in case you're still thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm actually too smart and mature to fall for that kind of a trick. I know my vulnerabilities. Leave a finger in Esther. Turn with me to Luke. Turn with me to the gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We're going to hopefully, Lord willing, (laughs) we're going to do a much deeper dive into this passage a little later on this year when we get back to our Luke series. But let's just glance at Christ's parable in verse 11. Jesus said to the crowd... There was a young man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property which is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. Let's try to follow the young son's logic here. Let's see if any of that sounds familiar to you. The younger son says, I want a life. That feels better than the one I currently have. And these desires are natural. They're normal. And so it must be okay for me to pursue them. In fact, look, God's already provided all the resources and the opportunity that I need. I just have to bend the rules a little bit. It worked. You see, I can have it all. My father's not dead and I get my inheritance. I can live the good life. It's a win-win. Friends, this is a well-worn path of rationalization. And it has led to incalculable misery in a myriad of forms. Everything from, from overeating to adultery. And those aren't hypotheticals. How much heartache, how much shame, how much waste could have been avoided By choosing to celebrate God's plan to do good for his people. On his terms, not ours. That's what celebrating looks like. So the other side of the spectrum, it's a little bit more obvious. So I think we do a slightly better job of addressing it, but it is worth mentioning. A consistent celebration of God working everything to our good and his glory, is also going to safeguard your life against fatalism. This idea that nothing in my life even matters. None of it's any good and none of it's going anywhere. God's going to do what God's going to do. I'm just along for the ride. Haman actually proves this point with his life because in, in the end of chapter 5, we saw him deeply in fatalism and then swinging over in the middle of chapter 6 to where he's lifted up by superstition. Who else would the king want to honor? Only to fall back into fatalism at the end of chapter 6 where he's humiliated. It's no surprise. He doesn't celebrate. He doesn't submit. Or he's not one of God's people. All of his ends are not going to work together for good, but... What about you? Are you swinging between the two extremes? Or have you found the peaceful center of celebrating God's good goals? Now, I don't actually think that this purpose is what Haman most clearly demonstrates. No, I, I think Haman is more clearly, more closely connected to our final divine purpose. Purpose number three. God has set a personal goal to humiliate his enemies. I know that might sound a little odd, so track with me. Listen to a few familiar passages and see if you can pick up on God's heart here. Genesis chapter 3, right after Eve's sin, we see God talking to the serpent. He says, Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel. What about Psalm 110. This is one of the pieces that validates Christ's divinity. But pay attention. Psalm 11 Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." What about Colossians chapter 2 verse 13? Again, positive uh, affirmation of our salvation, right? This is Paul saying, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Or Psalm 37. Verse 12, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs. So one of the few places we get to see God laughing. What does he laugh at? The Lord laughs at the wicked. For he knows their day is coming. Friends, I know, again, the the, the, the deliberate goal of humiliating another person, it can be a little off-putting. It sounds more like something you'd see on on a villain. Character, right, than than a just and merciful God. But here's the key distinction we're talking about God's enemies, not yours. God is going to humiliate His enemies, right, not just the people who don't like us. And since we don't talk nearly as much about this goal as we do about the other two goals, I think it could be helpful to see some connection between God's goal of humiliating his enemies and his primary goal of displaying his perfections to the universe. So before we get back to Esther, would you turn to Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 42. See a few verses that that tie these two goals together. Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to start in verse 5. Isaiah says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. He gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people, to a light of the nation for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and, and from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I mean, that's, that's classic God, right? Sticking to his guns, staying focused on his main thing, revealing his glory to the universe. And you can even see in verse 7, he, he weaves in his second goal, his second purpose, our great good. Look at verse 7. He opens the eyes that are blind. He brings out the prisoners from the dungeon. He, he, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. And then in verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Friends, he could have stopped there. We know that no purpose of the Lord could be thwarted. He could have just said, I'm going to do that. But he didn't. Skip down to verse 17. Skip down to verse 17. He says, they are turned back and utterly put to shame. Those who trust in carved idols. Those who say to the metal images, you are our God. Friends, the contrast here highlights the value difference. It's not enough that God wants to win. It's not enough that he's going to win in the end. The gap between his infinite worth and these cheap wannabe knockoffs is so wide, it's embarrassing. It's not just that God's going to win gold dominantly and then somebody else will finish a distant second and get silver, Friends, he's not even going to share the podium with these hacks. He will humiliate them. Again, it is so important that we recognize these are his enemies, not ours. These are not the people who make fun of us or persecute us, even kill us. Because one of the ways that God is going to humiliate his true enemies is by rescuing and redeeming some truly wicked people and then adopting them into his family. Such were some of us. Lord willing, we're going to get deeper into that in a few weeks as we wrap up the series. We have to ask, if God's goal of humiliating his enemies doesn't guarantee that he's going to beat the snot out of mine, what exactly are we celebrating here? If you turn back to Esther 6, I think we're going to see two very good reasons why we want to celebrate this purpose. Two good reasons that only happen when we celebrate this big picture goal or or at the very least we humbly submit to it. The first blessing that we get from celebrating the humiliation of God's enemies is that we are free to ignore The threats of wicked men. Look down at verse 1. 6 verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. Again, the contrast here, the contrast between the characters, it's so helpful. Because look right back at the the verse before it, in chapter 5, verse 14. This is Haman. His wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hung upon it. Who's going to be hung in the morning? Not the king. Who should be awake all night? The guy that's going to die in the morning, Mordecai, but not him. The king is awake all night. Obviously, we don't know Mordecai's heart. We don't know if he's celebrating God's eternal purposes here. But folks, the fact that Mordecai can simply shrug off the murderous threats of a powerful man, more than anything else in this story, that tells me Mordecai's a man of faith. He gets it. And not only this, not only is Mordecai protected from the, the threats of wicked men, he is unaffected by the flattery of foolish King Ahasuerus. Look at verse 11, 611 says, So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square proclaiming, Thus shall it be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Verse 12, Mordecai goes back to work. The flattery of the foolish roll off this guy like water off a duck's back. He is unfazed. He was just treated like a king, literally a king. The crown, the robe, the whole nine yards. And the next minute, he's back at his desk. Folks, what about you? Wouldn't you love to have that kind of freedom, that kind of confidence, to be unafraid, unaffected, in the middle of swirling circumstances, you simply do your job. Folks, we can have it. We can have all of it and more when we humbly submit, better yet, when we joyfully celebrate God's eternal purposes. I don't know if you guys know this yet, but, but Esther is a purpose book. It's actually kind of an origin story for why, we, why the Jews would celebrate their festival of Purim. And that's part of the reason I keep going back to celebration. I think it's our, our most appropriate response to God's providence. I think the normal Christian life is designed to have regular, routine celebration mixed into it. It's one of the reasons we sing every week. And I'm not 100% sure, if I could be honest with you all, I don't know exactly what that means for a Christian living in America in 2022. We're not going to recreate the celebration cycle from, from Jewish history, but I am excited, folks, to practice with you. As a church family, in our community groups, as individual families, folks, we have eternity to perfect our celebrations But I know me, for one, I'm going to practice now. So we're going to sing loud. And we're going to eat good food. And we are going to enjoy our good God. And we're going to get back to work. Because fearful, anxious Haman was humiliated. And rested, confident, unfazed Mordecai got back to work. So I want to close today by reading a psalm that I think not only ties together these three purposes but also it highlights the blessings that come from celebrating as a family if you're physically able would you stand with me as we read Psalm 73 it's a psalm of Asaph and he said truly God is good To Israel, to those who are pure of heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, and they're not troubled like others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment, and their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff, and they speak malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression, and they've set their mouths against heaven, and their tongue struts through the earth. And therefore his people are turned back to them and they find no fault in them. These wicked say, how could God know? Is there no knowledge in heaven? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream. When one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them like phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. But nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but but God is the strength of my heart, and he's my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful. But as for me, it is good to be near. God, I have made the Lord my refuge and I will tell of all of your works. Father, we love you. We need your help, not just to submit. God, we need your spirit in us to truly celebrate your purposes and your power. Would you give us your help today as we practice celebrating your good goals? We love you. Amen.